Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership Solutions. We are continuing continuing this afternoon with our ongoing series, Women in Leadership. We have with us today, Caitlin Vargas. Uh, she is the Startup Community Director for Onward Eugene. But before we get started with Caitlin, I want to acknowledge today's sponsor, Molina Law Group. Molina Law Group is a local immigration law practice located right here in Springfield, Oregon. And they have two satellite offices, one in Beaverton, Oregon, and another one in Cottage Grove, Oregon. And they can help friends, family, acquaintances in any area of immigration law, whether it's student visa, work permits, citizenship, residency. Uh, Molina Law Group can be found on Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. Their phone number is 541-653-8899. I'm really excited today uh, to interview Caitlin as we began this series last December, Women in Leadership. One person's name has come up at least a dozen times, and it is hers. And as my interest began to build, I all, her name would come up, and I would always forget to ask, well, how can I get a hold of her? And then I saw her profile on Facebook one time, and I'm like, okay, now I know how to find her. And so I wasn't even sure how to really spell <clears throat> her first name. With that being said, I'm going to begin by reading Caitlin's bio. I'm going to read it as she sent it. Her bio is in her words. This is her leadership story and her leadership journey. And we want to honor that by reading the words, the bio that she sent in her own words. Caitlin helps passionate local entrepreneurs as the startup community director for Onward Eugene, an organization dedicated to economic prosperity. After spending close to a decade fundraising for nonprofits, including Eugene Mission, Caitlin now spends her time engaging underrepresented communities in their first steps on the path to entrepreneurship. The current board president for Lane Transit District, Caitlin has a long list of volunteer committees and boards that she serves on. She is fiercely committed to regional resiliency and was a founder of the Eugene Young Professionals Program. A risk taker at heart, you can find Caitlin on the weekends enjoying an adventure with her four young children and golden retriever Peach. Part of her story, her words. My climb into leadership truly started when I went to Northwest Christian University to obtain my MBA. At the time, I was working at Goodwill Industries and Workforce Development and had received three promotions in just two years. I was prompted to get my Master's in Business Administration by my supervisor at the time, Rick Kangle. Did I pronounce that right, Kangle? Yeah. Very good. One of the most influential people I have ever known, Rick was an empowering leader who I still like to model my own actions after. Leaving Goodwill for Eugene Mission, I worked on the front lines for a year as the Women's Center Manager before being promoted to the Eugene Mission's first ever development, development director. The challenge of learning to build a sustainable fundraising strategy was a very fond memory for me, and I can think of plenty of examples of where I completely failed. Once again, I had the best role model I could ever ask for with my boss, Executive Director Jack Tripp, who involved me in every process and decision, truly teaching me how to be a leader every step of the way. Four years working with Jack is no doubt the defining moment in my career, and I truly believe he was the most influential person al along in my journey. There have also been mentors who have shaped my growth. I suppose the overall theme 
would be a group of individuals who truly cared about my success and invested in me. As I have stepped into my new role in, the, in a new industry, I am already learning on a small circle of experts who are guiding my way, including my current boss, Matt Sayre. After working with Jack, I have been very intentional about who I work for and make, making sure it is the right fit. I want to recapture that synergy I experienced in the Eugene Mission role. Lastly, I have been involved with numerous boards and committees, an exhaustive list to be honest. I am the current Lane Transit District board, board President, the youngest to ever serve, and heavily involved in Bushnell University Center for Leadership and Ethics. As we chat about my journey, I want to say that I feel so grateful for the servant leaders that always lift others up. The credit really goes to those folks. I am thankful for I am thankful there are so many people like that in Eugene and Springfield. Caitlin Vargas, welcome to Molina Law, uh, Leadership Solutions Women in Leadership series. How are you doing today? Good. That you did a great job reading that. I don't even need a business card. I just I'm going to take that clip of your recording and and just Use that as my introduction to everyone I meet from now on. <laughs> Very good. All right. First things first. Tell us something about you that's not on your bio. Um, something about me that's not on my bio is that I traveled around a lot. Um, when when I completed high school here, the second I turned 18, I said, I am getting out of here. And I hightailed it down to California. And this is the funny part. After going to high school here and being um, perplexed by how crazy everyone was about the Ducks and football games, I said, I'm going to base my college decision on if they have a football team or not. So I specifically chose Sonoma State University in California because they had no football team and I didn't want to live in a town that was so football crazy. So there you go. <laughs> Very interesting. Who would have considered the negative aspect or the negative component of being in a football crazy university town? I did find out that they were lacrosse crazy. So the learning out of it was that every college has some sport they're nuts about. It just kind of depends what the sport is wherever you go. Now, what high school did you graduate from here in, in the area? I graduated from Marist. Um, I, I actually went I was in public school up until high school and went to Marist and just really, really enjoyed that um, experience. And actually about a year ago, they tracked me down and said, hey, will you come back and serve on an alumni committee? And because I can't say no, I said yes. And um, I am currently on the core committee, which is uh, community outreach, recruitment and engagement for Marist. What did you enjoy about Marist that was so distinct that uh, you would go back and be part of an alumni service group? Really the feeling of family, which I think we all probably say that about workplaces as well, but there, it was a small school. Um, and so that sense of community was really strong. And because you, um, there's heavy structure as well. And I'd give the example of you, when you are your freshman, sophomore, and junior year, you don't leave campus for lunch. You're almost kind of forced to interact with your classmates, but it creates these really strong bonds. And so everything that that school did was meant to um, really lift you up in life in terms of your 
peers and creating a good family like and support network for yourself. And then also, you know, with things like this, the dress code, you learn to be presentable in public. You learn how to respect others by showing up on time, being dressed nicely, um, how, how you speak to others. And then because that's a faith-based community, um, you're really kind of learning service to others as well. What are some of your fondest memories from your experiences in Marist? I would say, um, I would say going back to that service for others, we did, you are required to complete service hours, but a lot of times um, it just kind of becomes part of your life. And so I was volunteering on a regular basis by the age of 14. I actually started at Relief Nursery and I spent my entire summer volunteering with young kids and in the classroom and being a van rider. And I just kept doing that every summer, even though it wasn't required. And so I really got to learn um, just how impactful your time volunteering is to others. I saw those kids who came out of poverty situations really start to flourish over the summer and saw the just the level of impact that healthy adults had on their lives. And that stuck with me, you know, as I obviously entered my career in nonprofit. That's one of the things that I believe our youth and most of our school systems are lacking is the knowledge, the understanding of the power of volunteering, uh, the power of being in service to others and how that can really help us become more uh, complete as individuals, give us negotiating skills, conversational skills, empathy, awareness of your community that's around you. And so that is, I didn't know that about Marist, that you had had community service requirements. Oh yeah, I'd say heavy community service requirements. I believe you can start your, your hours start your junior year and they have to be completed by your senior year in order to graduate, but it's hundreds of hours. I think it was in the like three to 400 range. So outside of the Relief Nursery, what are some of the other areas you remember from your youth uh, serving in? Um, We also served at some of the nursing homes, um, going and visiting. Um, We would go to Avamir quite frequently um, and also just do some kind of different like gift basket type things for, you know, not just Parents Relief Nursery, but um, Eugene Mission at the time. folks in St. Vincent de Paul housing or programs. And so helping out those parents and families as well. So really kind of spanned the whole spectrum because we got to do kids and elderly um, and adults. And so, which was nice to really figure out your passion, really. Like who, who did you, who did you connect with the most? Kayla, what do you remember about the elderly in the nursing homes as a youth? Um, how grateful they were to have visitors. You know, it's funny, um, Mark, I don't know if you remember our first meeting, but you volunteer at the mission and you've been volunteering at Eugene Mission for quite some time. And I, I remember um, seeing you interact with the Life Change group. And so, you know, you're, you're a great example of someone who walks the walk and, and talks the talks. Right? Is that am I saying the right? Well, yeah. well yes. <laughs> Please forgive me. I don't remember meeting you there. 
it was a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, I just did a uh, eulogize Jennifer Zimmerman on Sunday at her oh, memorial yeah. service. So many, I saw many lasting relationships. So it's it was a unique season, and to see how the missions mission <laughs> has completely changed and be been refocused, re-strategized, rebranded. What is the three R's now? I am not sure that definitely was a new season after I left, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So let me ask you a question about your family, your parents. Did you see, were, did they model for you um, or your whoever you were living with at that time? Did they model community service? Did your family participate in that? Or was this something that was sparked in you as a, at a young age? So that's a, a great question. Um, my parents who divorced when I was really young are both, um, city administrators. So they both had their master's degree and were extremely, um, involved in their work. My father was assistant city manager for like almost two decades here locally in Eugene. Um, so he worked with the city of Eugene for a very long time. My mom, um, had worked in city government before being the internship director for the 3PM program at U of O and then bounced back into city government for a while. She worked with LCOG um, and then she eventually became mayor of Benita. So they, they were in a lot of public service positions where I saw them put their community first. And no, it's not necessarily the same thing as volunteerism, but I saw that they always were, had the best interest of the community at heart no matter what they're doing. And they worked these exhaustive jobs to really better where we lived. Looking back on your community service time, we're gonna go around, uh, for those that are listening in the interest of full disclosure, I did not send K Caitlin any advanced questions. And the reason why is after I read her bio multiple times and all the stories that I have heard about her from all those that have recommended her, I knew that the best way to let her hear her story, to hear her story was to let her tell her story organically in the moment because there was something about your bio that that told me that this was the best way you would be able to help us learn more about you. Um, so in the end, when you were graduating Marist, when you were preparing to leave, what are some of the things that, how were you different and how were you aware that you were different? Um, first, I'd like to say college was easier than Marist. Mar Man, when they say Marist is a preparatory school, they are not lying. I, I literally, I don't, I don't want to say breeze through college, but it, I was extremely well prepared. I, um, what's funny is I actually wanted to be a doctor for a long time. So I went to Sonoma State and started in the biology program um, as my um major thinking I'm going to be a doctor and I'm used to like pretty high grades. I'm, I'm, I execute things pretty well. And I'm sitting in these biology classes, like bored out of my mind. And I ended up getting a C because I don't care about plants. Plants are boring. And so who knew you had to learn about plants and mitochondria and all that stuff, you know, in order to become a doctor. So I actually bombed out of that path for myself um, and decided that 
I need to redirect. Um, and so that, that was an interesting kind of kick in the butt, I would say that first, um, year of college. And thankfully I continued to get mostly A's and some B's the rest of my college career, but that, that was a tough pill to swallow in the beginning was, um, how incredibly uninterested I was in what I thought I was going to be interested in. So some, you know, sometimes I, I think I'm going to do something and he has other plans for me. Um, so I ended up actually taking one of those, um, aptitude tests and I said, all right, let's give, let's give it a whirl. And so it said I was interested in people and that was kind of your interest in people. And I said, well, duh, I wanted to be a doctor. I like the human body. And then it's like, no, you're, you're interested in humans and their behavior. And so, um, I ended up from there going towards an anthropology degree and really, really loved anthropology and just enjoyed that. Um, and anthropology is interesting because you take linguistics classes, you take, um, cultural anthropology, which is very similar to sociology. And then you also take physical anthropology. Um, and from physical anthropology, I actually went into medical anthropology a little bit um, and, and studied osteology. And it just was a cool, well-rounded experience. And you're thinking now like, well, what the heck are you gonna do with an anthropology degree? I wasn't thinking that at the time. I just knew I was really interested in my classes. So it's it just was a, a pivot, you know, um, that what I would say I enjoyed and put me on a great path. But at the time you're just kind of throwing your hands up in the air. Like, I thought I had it all figured out. What's going on? So, um, anthropology, I've met several people in the last few years that have had degrees in cultural anthropology. I had not heard of physical anthropology, medical anthropology. Uh, what is osteology? Um, that's the study of the skeleton, essentially. And so in our osteology class, you they would hold up a, a bone and we would say, okay, well, that's the right orbital bone from a Asian male age 40. So you study these bones and, and just like they do with um, kind of criminal uh, anthropology, you, you can determine uh, race, sex, age. It's pretty interesting stuff. So then the study of anthropology, I, I want to kind of get into this with you a little bit because I yeah. can see who you are and what you've studied. So the study of anthropology, and it captivated you, caught your attention. You bombed out of medical school. You didn't like it. It's not who you are. You know, internally, you like people interested in, in regards to human behavior or humans yes. and their behavior. Yep. So anthropology was doing what for you? Anthropology was giving me an insight into how people acted and why they acted that way. And I'll give you an example, you know, in cultural anthropology, you're literally studying different cultures. And I can't think the name, the name of the book right now, but we, you know, we spent a half a semester studying this one book book, and it was written by an anthropologist who spent time in Brooklyn, um, in New York. And he was like hanging out with kind of the gangs and some other folks. And he wrote this amazing book about it. And so, yeah, people think of culture of some tribe, you know, in New Zealand, but no culture exists in the borough in Brooklyn. Um, 
and based on your surroundings and your environment and how you grew up and what you were, um, you know, faced with throughout life is going to shape who you are. And so that, that was really interesting to me, um, learning that behavioral component in, in our own subcultures within America. Now, did that give you in your leadership development, did that give you more refined vision of, and direction as to what you were going to do next? Yes because I think that the first reaction I have is putting myself in the other person's shoes. And so I've been very intentional about always trying to learn more about my EQ and my emotional intelligence so that I can better understand why the other person is doing something something they are or saying something they are and be very cognizant of, of their experiences. Let me ask you a question, your opinion. How important in your leadership opinion from your leadership experiences, and you are experienced, and I would consider based on your resume, I would I would classify you potentially as, as an expert in, in your field of work, your field of study around people. What is your opinion on why it's important for leaders to understand, to try to develop emotional intelligence? I think it's about networks, number one. No one operates in a silo. It doesn't matter what your job is. You have to interface with others. And it shouldn't just be about one person's experience. It should be about the shared experience. And so leaders should be looking at emotional intelligence about how they're affecting a customer, how they're affecting their employees, how they're affecting other um, business folk within that same industry. So there's a lot of different touch points that it's important to understand what's going on with those touch points. And so I, I, you know, I think of someone that um, I know that owns commercial real estate and, you know, it's even important for them to understand how their leases feel, how their potential buyers feel, um, no matter what your job is, it's important. Very good. I, I know so many people who, do not see the value of emotional intelligence. They're not, they're not, they don't place a value on developing social skills or social capacity outside of their individual uh, culture or group culture of, of uh, affiliation. And so I think that has a lot to do with why we're so polarized right now in communities and in our country, because we're not willing to expand that uh, area of influence that to, to meet someone else as you say to know some of those touch points are really like that because in that expression it's the reality that our lives touch others it's not just physical but that the reality that relationally we touch one another let's talk about you graduated sonoma state then what happened i went over to new mexico actually 
and um, went to graduate school. Oh, wait, nope, I skipped something. I forgot that I moved to Hawaii for a year. I graduated college and a good friend lived in Maui and I was going to go visit for my graduation present and I didn't leave. And I worked on a snorkel boat for a year. And this is going to be really funny to you. That's actually where I learned my work ethic. I had worked in restaurants before that and just kind of whatever. No, that was the hardest job. And, um, you know, there's a captain and there's a first mate and a second mate. For our particular snorkel boat, we had to bring all the supplies on, you know, starting at about 6 a.m. And then you get the boat ready and you bring people on and you take them to the first snorkel spot. And one person might be in the water lifeguarding and one's grilling really fast and you have to make like 50 hamburgers in like 20 minutes. Um, and then you're feeding everyone and cleaning and you're going to the next spot and um, lifeguarding there. And then the bar opens and then you head back and you clean the boat. And then you have to use the boat to ferry. So you're working six to six. And I mean, you're just go, go, go the whole time. There's two people. There's no opportunity to slack off. Um, there were times when I'd be out lifeguarding. There was one time there was a shark. You know, there's all these crazy things. But at the end of the day, it's like you're swimming with dolphins and turtles every day. So you really can't complain. Um, but it was this it was this really great experience of really learning my work ethic, having a total blast, you know, being on a boat every single day. Um, and then also learning what it meant to like really provide for yourself. The rent obviously was outrageous and the living cost was insane where I was working up to six days a week. So that was a good experience for me, but yeah, I did that for like a year and then I was like, okay, I gotta go back into the real world. And then I went to, um, New Mexico state and Las Cruces for uh, my master's program and continued on with anthropology. When you were in Hawaii, I was in 25th Infantry Division in Maui, and, and I mean, oh, in, cool. Oahu, in Oahu, but I visited, I've been to Maui twice, a uh, beautiful place. What did you learn besides, you learned to work hard, you learned to provide for yourself. If you could look back, what are some of the lessons now that you're aware of that you were able to distill from that experience outside of the working hard? And You know, Maui was interesting because it's still fairly segregated in terms of um, folks who are native to the island and then the white population that have moved there. And just because of my, my job and I worked with a lot of natives, I maybe had the advantage of kind of getting more on the in crowd with um, folks from Hawaii. But that that divide was real. And that was really interesting to me. Um, and then, you know, just going back to the human piece of it, we'd have a lot of different folks on the boat from a lot of different countries and cultures. Um, so just getting that opportunity to interface with a lot of different people and hear about I can't tell you how many people had never even been on a boat before. And that's maybe something in, in America we kind of take for granted or we just, and so it was always really interesting to just hear like the background and experiences of others and just getting to meet a ton of different people. We had a few famous people even come on the boat, which was always really fun. Um, but, you know, I, I think just the worldly exposure I joined the army after dropping out of college at 
18. I joined the Army at 19. And the exposure. Going to basic training and from a small town in Texas and realizing the world was a lot bigger than Texas was a shock, yeah. first of all. <laughs> and that everyone that looked like me didn't need chorizo and beans. That was another shock. <laughs> <laughs> and that, uh, you know, the world just opened up, as you say. Yeah. And people from all, we had people from the boroughs, from New York. At that point in time, it was still an option, go to prison or go in the army, right? So there was a lot of guys yeah. in my platoon that uh, had, the judge gave them, gave them an option, you're going to go to prison or you're going to join the army. So they joined the army. I think we had four or five guys like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I can appreciate the world opening up and that experience and travel, yeah. travel does that. Travel does yep. it for you. So you come back, and why did you decide New Mexico for your grad program? I've always been drawn to the Hispanic culture. I love the sense of family. I love the strong bonds that exist um, and just kind of the general way they live their life in terms of just feeling like it's a blessing. And um, I just, I, I don't know. It's just always a draw to me and it what ended up actually being really fun. You know, it was, I don't think I locked my front door for about two years while I lived there and places would close and we would all just go have, you know, drink margaritas and food and a patio at four o'clock. And it just was like such a great lifestyle. Like that, that interpersonal focus was like totally what I was looking for. And you did go to school while you were there? Yeah, I went to um, New Mexico State University in Las Cruces. Um, and I worked towards my master's degree for, a, I was very close, um, a little uh, over or under two years. And, and also you, just really enjoyed that experience. Loved living there. And what did, what were you studying? So I was studying medical anthropology. Um, wow. and that they, New Mexico state has a very, uh, prominent, um, anthropology program. And I, man, I just had such a great time there. Just an area full of really cool people. A lot of people came down from Albuquerque. I would say that was about probably half the school were honestly folks from Albuquerque. So I would spend a lot of time going up there. I still plan to retire in Santa Fe someday. Santa Fe is so beautiful. And it's, you know, New Mexico is a poverty state. And so that means the two largest cities are very, very affordable to live in. Cost of living is very low. Um, and Santa Fe to this day is the cleanest downtown I think I've ever been to. Um, and I think it's so cool because the architecture is all like old Adobe style, even like the McDonald's. It's so cool. Yeah. I've been to Albuquerque and Santa Fe um, and they don't have mosquitoes in New Mexico. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. So in case for those that are watching, who will hear this later. They do not yeah. have mosquitoes in New Mexico. <laughs> and the climate is similar to Italy, believe it or not. And yes. they have tons of vineyards and so if you like wine that that is where you should go if you like to be able to afford a nice house with no mosquitoes and wine new mexico is your place you have a lot of family that lives in alamogordo so oh yeah yeah 
beautiful country. No one ever believes me when I tell them there's a town called Truth or Consequences. Yeah. <laughs> but that actually exists in New Mexico. Yes. My mother's father, Grandpa Genaro, he was a, a, a stable boy for Pancho Villa. Oh, no way. Yeah. That's so, so cool. Yeah. Um, he still had the first pesos that Pancho Villa ever paid him. Uh, That's so cool. Yeah. All right. So you how you were in New Mexico about two years, right? Mm -hmm. And then what happened? Um, so my um, mom has had some health issues and she had a brain aneurysm mm. um, and then she had a stroke. And so um, when she had her stroke, I decided to move back to Eugene to spend time with her and help her. She had some pretty significant mobility issues after that. Um, so that, that was a hard decision, um, to leave and, and come back, but you know, it's, our moms would do anything for us. So we should do anything for them. Right. How old were you at this time frame? Um, that I believe was in 2007 or eight around that um, time frame. My, my father also lives here. Um, and my sister at the time, I believe also was living here as well. Um, so it was nice to reconnect with family after being gone, um, for quite a while. Um, and so I, I was here for about a year and then I applied to, uh, university of Washington in Seattle. Um, their doctoral program, you start out getting your master's and then you can roll that into your PhD. And that was my plan. So I headed up to Seattle after being a, spending about a year here with my family. And what were you going to study in your master's to PhD? Same thing, anthropology. Um, and, you know, Seattle is also a, a cool place. People do not lie about the traffic. That, that is a real issue. That's a serious issue. Yeah. Um, how long? Now, I'm assuming that you left here for Seattle to start your master's. Did you finish that or what happened with that? How did that unfold? Great question. So I did not. I was also up there about a year, lived in the Northgate area and was working up there. And um, I was uh, dating someone at the time and became pregnant with my first child. And so that once again derailed my plans and um, had my first child up in Seattle and lived up there. And then when my son was three months old, my partner left. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, I've got some different options here. And I, what I decided to do, I said, you know, this, the, the one option that I'll probably always come back to is needing help from my family. So that was the final time I decided to move back to Eugene and I have been here ever since, but that, that was the catalyst to coming back. And I got to tell you, my family was a huge, huge help. Um, having, having an infant and, and being single, which no one ever imagines that's what's going to happen, but that's the reality for many people. Let's talk about that. If we can, this series is titled women in leadership mm -hmm. and these things in life happen. 
thing unplanned events could be a pregnancy could be your parents health could be an opportunity in a different state it could be an experience in a different uh, location if you were speaking to a room full of young women right now or any woman uh, trying to grow in leadership wanting to they're facing difficult circumstances that are in opposition to what their goals or dreams or ambitions were what would you say to them about getting uh, focused and looking at their alternatives about uh, what they what actions they might be able to take to to stay on a healthy trajectory so i i would give the advice that it's up to you to change your circumstances and i mean that in two different ways just because your parents have money doesn't mean they will help you with yours or just because your parents don't have money doesn't mean you can't get what you need to provide for yourself. So don't let your, your family or your support system influence. You, you, you are the one who will have to make the choices to move forward. And, and I try and be pretty real about that because, um, you know, my family, I don't want to, I, you know, tough love. I hate using that term. But I would say they definitely said, hey, you got yourself into this. You're going to get yourself out of this. Is that the right approach to everyone? No. Um, that's just my personal experience. But at the end of the day, I knew it was up to me. I couldn't sit there and just say I'm the victim or I can't do this. I had to um, either reach out to someone who I felt like would be a good support system or find that strength within myself to move forward. And I think that's why I wrote in my bio, Mark, about all those mentors or important leaders in my role is those are truly people who held their hand out and helped me move forward. And, and those are people I really value. I don't, I don't think it's always possible for you to just magically do things on your own. You you're going to need help. Um, and, and that looks different for different people. But the first part of that is just um, recognizing potential in someone and maybe providing encouragement or empowerment. Um, so in my particular case, I started just kind of looking at what type of professional role models um, could I reach out to that might help me move myself along um, and get out. You know, I was, I was a single mom living in affordable housing no one pictures themselves in that scenario. Right. And it's weird to me to think that that was just 10 years ago. Um, cause now obviously my situation's different, but that's a tough spot to be in. You, you, you're, you got to work your way up. That's really, I don't want to say at the bottom, but that, that's a tough, that's a bottom of the ladder. And so there, there, there was a lot of um, one step forward, two step back during that, that time period. And eventually I landed the role at Goodwill because I said, I know my worth. I have a college degree. Like I'm going to keep reaching out to different people to see who can help me until I get where I know there's some promise. And that's what I did. And, and there was someone um, who worked at, Lane Workforce Partnership 
um, named Janet Lewis, who was like, totally believed in me, was like, I'm going to find an opportunity for you. Let's do this together. So that's my example of like, there's always going to be kind of those guardian angels or those wonderful people who help you get to where you need to go. Well, let me begin, first of all, by thanking you for your vulnerability and thanking you for taking a few moments to answer that. Uh, these are really important stories that need to be heard. And these sp specifics, some of these details, will become good advice, sound counsel, idea spawning inspiration for others who may be facing similar circumstances. You said people have to make their own choices. They have to decide to move forward. You said that you were a single mom living in affordable housing. That was just 10 years ago and you felt like no tougher spot to be in. And you had to work your way up. You had to work your way out. You said you felt after every two steps you took forward, you took one step back. That was a journey. That was a day-to-day -day personal confrontation you had to have with yourself every day. But yet you came back to this realization. When you said that that was just 10 years ago, my I was thinking when you were talking, here's this brilliant woman with this powerful mind and sense of who she is and she's having to fight you know you fight out of this incredible situation wasn't your you know your partner left you're a single mom you came back to be around family I'm sure they helped you to a certain degree but as you said they expected you to you know pick yourself up get back yeah. in the fight and take care of it and you did it and through that process, you had to remember who you are, what is your self-worth, and you kept looking for an opportunity to apply yourself, to apply your college degree, and someone by the name of Janet Lewis, and I don't know why I recognize her name, but I do, from Lane Workforce Partnership said, you know what, I believe in you, and I'm going to help you. Now, let's talk about how Janet did that a little bit as a mentor. Sure. So she helped me first by really simply, honestly, revising my resume um, and and kind of saying, hey, if, if this is the type of job you want to go after, you're going to have to talk a little bit more about what soft skills you have related to that um, and kind of essentially what are transferable skills as well. So let's pull out what you did at your past job. Let's pull out what you did in in um, school and, and see how that could relate to what you want to do. And so that was a very tangible thing she did, right? Was, was help me with my resume. And then literally look, she looked for job leads for me where she felt like she could have some influence. So she did something very practical. She revised your resume. She said, let's look at what you can do what are some of your transferable skills? What are some of the tangible things that are that can help you move forward? And then she literally took a personal interest in helping you find work. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's funny when you phrase it like that because I think that 
is exactly what I've always done. Like when I worked at the Eugene mission is like, I think what, how others helped me, that's how I started to relate to others. And, you know, part of sharing this story is feeling that human connection with people who are currently experiencing a rough time or, or under disadvantaged in whatever way, you know, they're experiencing, but they have to see that other people have gone through it. It's important for them to see that other people have gone through it and gotten out of it. And so I don't always just blatantly say, Hey, this is where I was 10 years ago. You can do it too. But sharing my story is important for them to say, Hey, I was in your shoes. I get it. And that builds that trust and builds that relationship with whomever you're trying to help. So you get your opportunity, you get help. Someone helped you in ways that were practical and tangible. They invested themselves in you in areas that they had influence. And the door opens up for you at um, Goodwill. Is that mm -hmm. correct? Yep. Yep. What happened next? You know, Goodwill was a great place to work. Um, I was working in the job search center, which is open to the public and helped people find work. And so I, I, I honestly literally started at the bottom there. <laughs> like I was minimum, like less than minimum wage almost, but like minimum wage, just like, just trying to figure it out. Um, and I worked, I honestly just worked really hard and, and took it really serious and wanted to um, be the best version of myself there I could be. And so I started um, in helping to offer improvements wherever I could see, you know, whether it was like, Hey, could we change this form to this? Could we improve this process in this way? Could, or whatever, whatever that took, um, I took it really serious and they just, and, you know, same thing, like they just kind of saw like, Hey, you're, you know, this is a good fit for you and you're helping. And so I moved from, um, a temporary employee to uh, hired on as a full-time employment specialist, which was the term. And I opened up a new center in Cottage Grove and worked there for a year. And then I said, man, this, this commutes really hard. I'm a single mom. I got a one-year-old. Um, I just got a job offer from Catholic Community Services. I think I'm going to take that. And they said, no, you're not. We'll, we'll move you back here. We'll pay you at whatever they would have paid you no, you can't leave. And so I said, okay, great. Cause I didn't want to leave. So then I got um, promoted to job connections coordinator, which was a little more um, supervisory overseeing um, that center and kind of, you know, the, the beginnings of an expansion and then did that for about a year. And then they said, you're doing great you can be job connections manager and oversee this entire program and work directly with the workforce development director and staff. Um, and that was, that was fantastic. We opened, so what's funny. So we opened up one at Eugene mission. So guess what? I got to meet Dana and Jack and the whole mission team. Um, we opened up a new one over at green acres. Um, and then that's when Goodwill was acquiring uh, the Alaska territory. So I actually have to fly over to Alaska and kind of start the job of implementing um, services over there as well. But it was, you know, great, great, great staff. I can't say enough good things about um, who I got to interface with at Goodwill. And in particular, I'd say um, Christy Langworthy. 
She is the CFO. And what's ironic is she kind of has a similar story. She started as a temp at Goodwill as their receptionist and worked her way up to CFO. Um, and she was the one who said, hey, the, the catalyst for my turning point was I got my master's at um, Northwest Christian University. Check it out. So I did. And I started my master's program while I was still at Goodwill. I want to emphasize the story within the story. For those, this series is about women in leadership, not just the advancements and the promotions, but the things that you were able to do that positioned you for advancements and promotions. You started at the bottom, barely over minimum wage, you wanted, but you, it didn't matter. You wanted to be the best version of yourself and you looked for ways to help the other areas that you were responsible for or interacted with to be improved, to make it more beneficial. And along the way, because you, you did the hard work, you could have been down cash. You could, you could have said, ah, oh, it's just a job, whatever, man. I'm going to get my paycheck and go home and see my baby. You didn't do that. You applied yourself wholeheartedly completely engaged in, in the opportunity that you had, and it created ongoing. The promotions that came, they didn't come because of your college degree. The promotions that came didn't come because of your parents' positions in the community. The promotions that came was because of the hard work that you did in your with your attitude, with your effort, with your energy, with your passions, with your vote focus of wanting to be the best, best version of yourself and looking for ways to help uh, the areas that you interact with be improved. That's the story within the story and within this concept of women in leadership. That Those are the, the tangibles, the practical things that employers and leaders look for and who they're going to decide uh, they want to help get promoted to the next level and help move forward. So you went back, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm not going to pretend it was easy especially that first part when I first started and was like barely making any money, there was days I'd have a bowl of Cheerios and that would be it. And so I'm not going to pretend like it, it, it was, you know, without sacrifice, we went hungry and that's real. And I just, I, you know, I think that that in that moment, you have to say like, is there a future for me in this position? or with this company, what can I do to quickly kind of get to a place of stability? And I, in my term, I view stability as probably honestly just having enough money to cover my bills every month. Um, so there were times it was really tough and you kind of have to internally keep pushing and say, this is temporary and, and I will get through this. But you know, food insecurity is a real thing. And you, and you probably would have looked at me and not guessed that, but it, it, it happened. Food insecurity is a real thing. And it happens to the best of people in the most unpredictable moments in time. And I could go on a story about that, but I don't want to, this is my time with you. Uh, okay. So you heard about the master's program at Northwest Christian University. How did you decide on the on your on an MBA and why an MBA? Um, I wasn't completely sure 
what my path looked like in the nonprofit realm, or if I was even going to necessarily stay in nonprofit. So I felt like an MBA was probably the most applicable um, for, for knowing that I wanted to advance my career. I wanted to have more solid understanding of kind of budgetary and operational and uh, marketing aspects. And um, it was quite a bit cheaper than the U of O. <laughs> so um, at the time, the U of O just really wasn't a consideration for me. And what was great about Northwest Christian University is that it was online. And so I could work full time, still be a mom and start and start this program. And I also felt like it had a, a I would say a fair price tag. So I started that in January of 2014. So when did you leave the mission? I mean, the Goodwill for the mission and what was uh, the interest in the transition? So um, I had started my MBA. Like I said, I had known Jack and Dana from the year prior since we had um, opened up a job search center at the Eugene mission and we were still working closely with the mission. And I got an email one day that said, Hey, um, we're looking for a women's center manager. Do you know anyone that would be good? And I immediately, my interest kind of sparked just because I had known the leadership team. And I said, Oh, you know, tell me a little bit more about it. And I, and Dana said, wait, are you interested in this? And I said, Yes. And I think like an hour later, Jack had messaged me on LinkedIn saying, well, when can you come in for an interview? Um, and I came in, I think like two hours after that. I mean, it just happened. Bam, bam, bam. And the reason I felt like that was a good time for a transition was one, um, Goodwill was starting to change their model. So instead of the job search center being free to the public, and, and I can't comment on what it is now, but at the time they, they were gonna change it. So it was only open for folks going through um, Department of Human Services and essentially Goodwill would charge the case manager so that it was a fee for service type of thing instead of a free open to the public. And I said, you know what? That does not align with my value system. I, I think this should stay free. So it was a good time for a fresh leader to come in um, who could be the best fit for this new direction for them. And, you know, I, like I said, I just, I loved working with Jack and Dana so much. I just honestly jumped at that chance to be part of their team because they were just such um, amazing people. So you're, their new development director? So I worked, I, I was hired as the women's center manager. And that was an interesting job because, you know, you you don't think about these things, but I forgot the mission never closes. It's always open. So like I'm getting phone calls at 2am and, and by this time I had had my, um, in the meantime, when all this had happened, I had gotten engaged and had my second child. Um, and you know, you're just really never off the clock and you don't get holidays off and all these things. And, you're, and I'm like, oh, I didn't think about that. Um, 
anyways, I, I was a women's center manager and then we ended up mushing together the women and children's center with the women's center. So I start oversaw both of those and Jack was very supportive of me in my, uh, Jack and Dana are both very supportive of my educational pursuit and said, and so as I would go through classes, I would talk things out with them and try things out. Um, and as I was nearing the end of my MBA, they said, Hey, you know, we really need a development director. Is that something you're interested in? And I said, absolutely. Um, so it was just that internal conversation and it aligned so well with what I had just, you know, learned through my MBA program that I, um, happily jumped into that role. And, you know, and, and Mark, you probably know this better than anyone, but there can be a level of burnout when you work front lines, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a homeless shelter, housing program, whatever, but it, it can be hard to um, interface with folks who have severe mental illness or substance abuse issues or addiction issues in general day after day, all day long. And so it was a good time for me to kind of sidestep. Now, you said it was an easy transition because it aligned with uh, what you had been learning in your MBA program. Yeah. Does that also mean that it also aligned with you? Yes. So um, my what was interesting is, is that my parents um, are not Christian. They're not Catholic. They have never really gone to church. But my best friend growing up went to First Baptist Church of Eugene. And I, something about that really drew me in. So I would go to church with her and her family. So I started going to First Baptist when I was maybe seven, something like that. When I moved back with my infant, I went back to First Baptist. And um, it was just so cool. You know, they're in this great new building and um, they just embraced me. And I started volunteering in the nursery. I started going to counseling with Nancy Smith um, and just really got re-engaged with a church family. And when I moved out of affordable housing into a rental house, I had five um, of the elders show up with their trucks and their trailers to help me move. I don't think I touched a single box. Um, It just, it was a great re-engagement of that community um and and at the right time in my life you know um anyway so when I started the mission they kind of asked about my faith journey and and I would say it was it's been up and down um and sideways and upside down probably at some point you know and so that was that was a big part of that conversation of working at Eugene Mission you know do I identify with the Christian faith and do I feel comfortable sharing my faith in appropriate settings as part of my professional job? And I was, I, and I saw it also as an opportunity to grow in my faith as well. Um, and I felt very lucky that they felt the same about that. <clears throat> Development director. You said the challenge of learning to build a sustainable fundraising strategy was a very fond memory for me. And I can think of plenty of examples of where I completely failed. Yes. Let's talk about that dichotomy. So, you know, not not just building a relationship with donors, 
also events because we live in Eugene and there's a lot of fundraising events. I'd say for the donors, Jack was in a interesting position of, you know, Ernie had been there 50 years Mm -hmm. and he was this prolific figure and it, it, the mission ran like a church, right? It was a true gospel mission. And Jack was starting to shift maybe towards a social services model that was seen more as like, how, what, what proof exists out there that actually helps people move out of homelessness? Because that was his, his end, end goal. So he shifted things and that turned off some long-term donors. And the mission... Um, since it only takes uh, private funding, and they do that for a very good reason, because when you start to take government dollars or federal or state dollars, they can mandate how your programs are. And they all, you know, you can't, you know, strictly hire based on faith, which I don't think happens anymore, but at the time it was. Anyway, so these large uh, donors who had supported the mission for so many years said, oh gosh, I don't know if I like what's going on. So we had to actively reach out, share the story, share why things are happening. And I had to find a lot of new supporters. And for the first time, find supporters that weren't Christian and could support the work that was being done. And so that was a really interesting shift. And then secondly, I'd say for the events, Jack said, the reason a lot of people end up here is substance abuse. So I don't want alcohol at any fundraising events. And if you think of most large fundraisers that happen here, there's alcohol involved, whether it's Brewfest or just the galas with open bars. I mean, that's that's a huge, there's, one, there's multiple ones at the vineyards. So that was a really big challenge. And so um, Food Truck Fest came out of that. Um, but it, it took a lot of brainstorming and kind of figuring out how we're going to make that work. And there were times we tried smaller events or partnerships that bombed and, and thankfully, uh, Eugene food truck fest was a smash hit, but there were lots of things that were not. How did you learn as a leader and a new position development director? You had just, you have been rebuilding your life up to this point, educationally, professionally. What were you learning? How were you learning in the, in the failure, in the struggle, in trying to rebrand, re, or engage new donors? What are some of the things you learned about yourself in regards to leadership and communication? Um, I learned how valuable the relationship is with your immediate, I hate to use the word boss, but boss or supervisor. You know, Jack had had a long career in marketing. And so he was so um, passionate about when we did this rebranding and we actually hired an ad agency that this ad agency took me alongside their decision-making process, their creative process, and really taught me all of these things that they were doing. And Jack involved me in every single step. There is no way I would have learned all of that otherwise. And so to me, um, that relationship with Jack and just kind of um, watching how he interacted with the rest of the staff, watching how he um, 
you know, worked with me and the things he, he invested in me because he really did. That was, um, I would say the true kind of like moment I said, wow, I'm witnessing like the best leadership example I could possibly see. And this is what I'd want to emulate in my future because he makes me feel valued. So I want to do that for other people. That's a whole lot going on in those statements right there. <laughs> I mean, it's it's great, and we only got 25 more minutes, and so I've got to, I mean, I wish I would have scheduled this for a three-hour interview because there's just so much to who you are in your journey. I think we would need at least three hours to really untop some of that. Let's talk about um, this. Let's, let's transition now from the mission how did you know that it was time to move on? Had you come to a point where you realized you saturated the experience, you, you couldn't draw anything else from it? Was it better for someone else to take over at that point? Let's talk a little bit about how you transitioned to Onward Eugene. Sure, um, and I, I do wanna say, which I think is interesting, you know, especially since this series is about women. I actually, with my husband, um, had another child when I was the women's center manager and Jack let me bring my baby to work. We, I had a crib set up and everything in my office and I baby wore for the first few months. And then comes 2017, I had my fourth child and he moved me to a new office and let me bring my baby to work. I was back at work two weeks afterwards, not because I had to be, but because I wanted to. So I just want to also say, I, it's so cool when you have a boss, male or female, that's progressive enough to realize I've got a working mom and I'm going to accommodate her. So I just want to say that that was also honestly such a special experience because I grew, you know, me as a person, um, I grew by having my kids there and into, I, it was a seamless integration of my work life and my home life. Um, so I'll leave that at that, but I think it's just a cool thing because not as many employers do that as they should. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of just breeze over this, but I left the mission to work um, at Fifth Street Market. I said, man, this nonprofit thing is cool, but I want to try something else. And it wasn't anything. So Jack was leaving the mission and I said, hey, this might be a good time for me to try something else because I'd kind of gotten job offers along the way and said, oh, I don't know. But I had met Casey Barrett um, from Fifth Street Market, OB, and he was so great and he's such a visionary and got offered a position and said, yeah, I want to, I want to go into business. I got my MBA. I can do this. And let me tell you what, Mark, I completely bombed out of that. <laughs> I was there three months. I did not do a good job at all. It was not the, you, you think it's the whole grass is greener on the other side, right? It was not, I, I was not good at that at all. <laughs> um, so that was a short stint. And then I, um, got an offer to work over at Cornerstone Community Housing, which was a fantastic experience, totally back in my wheelhouse, uh, was the community relations director there. Um, really helped to build the branding of Cornerstone and um, who now is engaged in two amazing projects. 
um, and just really helped bring in a lot of supporters. That was kind of one of my main jobs there. Just really great team. At the time I was there, it was all almost all women. There was one male on staff, about 11 people. Um, just lo absolutely loved it. Um, Darcy Phillips, just phenomenal um, in the community. And, and then COVID hit. And all of a sudden I had no daycare and no school to send the kids to. And um, Darcy said, hey, well, we're gonna kind of restructure our funding um, strategy. And, you know, we're kind of thinking maybe the position would go this way a little bit, but you'd have to do 40 hours a week, um, which is what their needs were. And I said, I get it, um, but I, I, gotta, I, gotta, I got four kids at home now that I can't ignore eight hours a day. So we mutually said, okay, um, you know, the, this is where, this is where it has to go. Um, so I was home for this last year and I was talking to Christina Payne from Lane Workforce Partnership that 50% um, of the work women workforce uh, left their jobs in COVID to take care of their children. These numbers are staggering. I want to talk about that for a moment. <clears throat> Because in the realm of leadership, leadership responsibilities, leadership awareness, this is really critical. I know many community leaders are really hammering on the workforce availability and are assuming uh, negative implications or, or uh, communicating negative as, as insinuations against people. And the, there are so many people who, you know, I. I, I relied on before and after school programs so that I could work a full day. Mm -hmm. Th those aren't available. Mm -hmm. and, and some where there's a, there are some limited options and daycare isn't available on the on the, the scale that's needed. And I just want to say out loud for all the leaders and I know several of them that are saying, oh, you bunch of lazy community people that don't want to work. They're not taking into account at all. There are no before and after school daycare programs very limited daycare options and children at home trying to learn what are families supposed to do and yeah. and, and especially moms what you just said when my father died I, I was seven he had retired from the air force he was 39 had a heart attack then he had a stroke veteran of two foreign wars multiple tours of combat my mother was 37 with seven kids and she worked four jobs his retirement check was $133 a month back then. Oh, my gosh. And I watched how people treated my mother, Caitlin. They treated my mother like a dog. She, yeah. We were poor. She was a widow. And she was Hispanic. And this was the yep. 1970s. And people did not let her forget it. Yep. And so this, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this series was because uh, out of the memory of my mother, I know there are women out there like you who had a fight from the lowest low and have come out on the other side and it wasn't easy and it wasn't hard. You've paid the price, you've paid your dues. Even when you failed, you took that different job, it didn't work out, you got back in the process, you went to uh, Cornerstone Community Housing, then the pandemic hit you're still adjusting fire in military terms, former soldier. You're still adjusting fire. You've got your four kids at home. You're being a mom. You're you're fulfilling your duties and responsibilities. We're, we're with your children that matter the most. And uh, now we're back to Christina Payne. I'm sorry. I just, 
I keep hearing these comments about people just slamming the workforce and it's, it's bothersome to me. Yeah, I mean, right now I have got three kids home right now because their school's two days a week and there are literally zero options for them to go anywhere these other three days. And, you know, thankfully I can work from home right now. That's not always going to be the case. But, you know, there's also this interesting um, issue, and I would say inequity issue, because summer camp is starting, and Ray, um, I, my kids are going to go to summer camp, so I'm going back to work. Well, who can drop that money on summer camp? You know, it's still an issue. Like, that's not a reasonable solution for a lot of people. And, yeah, it's been... It's been tough. I know a lot of friends um, that have left very high profile careers, um, whether it's a physical therapist to lawyers who literally leave to take care of their children. And it's, it, it felt very, very um, backwards, right? That we've regressed to women leaving the workforce in this huge numbers to take care of kids. And um, there was a point also where my husband also lost his job during the pandemic and we found ourselves both unemployed and thankfully he found a new one, but that's, and, and the job he took is actually a traveling job. He's gone right now. And so here I am now trying to work full time with four kids, three at home all the time. Well, he's gone for a few days a week and we're just, and it's all a product of the pandemic to be really honest with you. Well, I thank you for allowing me to vent there a little bit. I just, it's a big story. It's yeah. a big backstory. Yes. And not, ev not everyone is at home taking advantage of the situation of the government booster check or whatever it is, as, as everyone wants to assume. There's a lot of other mitigating circumstances. So let's talk about Christina Payne, as you were saying. Sure. I just, you know, and Christina Payne was, um, uh, I had met her years ago when I worked at Goodwill. I got to actually work for Lean Workforce Partnerships for about six months to learn uh, what they were doing. And she's one of those women that helped me during this time. She knew I was out of work and she'd send me job leads or say, use me as a reference for this. And so I did, I used her as a reference. And so when I was job searching again, um, and I saw the onward position. Uh, I think I applied within two hours. And I said, I know I'm not, I don't necessarily have the background. I'm not a startup company founder. Um, I haven't been an entrepreneur, but I know I could do this position justice and I can build this network. And more importantly, the parallel that I see is that I've, I've spent my work helping people find their potential helping underrepresented communities be engaged in the process that they need to, to be successful. And I saw that same thing with this job. I said, you know what, let's get more women in the entrepreneurial space and let's get more people of color in the entrepreneurial space. And you have to make an effort and change how you do things in order to engage those populations. Um, and that's really been my focus so far is let's, for the, for the black community and Hispanic community and women, like meet them where they're at and help them. Don't expect them to go jump through all these professional hoops and come meet you where you're at. That's, and so it's changing the process, changing the way we think and changing how we 
present opportunities. And I'd say specifically for Onward, we, our programs are free. We, you know, we're trying to offer, um, so we offer two programs that help entrepreneurs. One's an eight week one that where folks start out in the pre-accelerator before they go to the 14 week accelerator. Um, but our whole goal is regional resiliency and we, in economic development. And so um, it's gonna be my job to share that out and help kind of sh shout that from the rooftops essentially um, as we help more people in this community prosper. Well, let's, we've got about 13 minutes. And so there's a lot of people, there's still a lot of people in the community and some of them significant leaders that don't believe that we should have this type of organization that you're leading. That is, uh, we don't need to focus on necessarily women that, because, you know, they're not that special or BIPOC individuals or entrepreneurs because, you know, they can figure it out for themselves. And that's just the truth because I hear it and that's just a reality so i i didn't know that about onward eugene i didn't really i think i just began to recently hear about onward eugene i was mm -hmm. following them on facebook trying to learn more so we've got about 12 minutes now let's talk about take this time to talk about the eight-week accelerator program the 14-week accelerator program the mission and purpose of onward eugene and, and how your organization wants to help women and BIPOC uh, leaders that are entrepreneurial in nature? So Onward's pretty cool because Onward's a product of a group in this community that identified essentially four different initiatives that we need to work on as a community to um, expand and build on our economic development. And so Onward was formed actually just about a little over a year ago um, or about a year and a half ago, and there's four initiatives. So there's, um, uh, you know, regional resiliency, and that's really where Matt focuses. And, you know, for example, he had a, a really cool webinar today with Comcast and Verizon and the FCC about low cost internet for folks, um, because that's a barrier for a lot of people uh, is the cost of internet. And so he's kind of focusing on, on some different initiatives. You know, he was part of the conversation at the table that brought Southwest airlines to Eugene and, um, he's helping bring in some of those great employers as well. So, and then we have someone who focuses, um, on business expansion and recovery, um, or excuse me, business recruitment and, ex and, and expansion. Um, and her name's Nicole and she's interfacing with those businesses and she's working on the on the job training program, which is also really cool, um, helping to uh, get employers engaged with uh, different types of employees they might not initially usually hire. And then we have one more initiative um, with Cassie who does our talent development um, and leadership. And so she's hosting career tours with U of O and she's engaging the young professional community and she's hosting um, a leadership leadership boot camp called Rise that helps companies uh, learn to collaborate better. So everyone has their own kind of pocket. And then my particular one is a strong startup ecosystem. So when we talk about those programs, we mean um, the pre-accelerator, eight weeks long, it's called ID8, like ID8. Um, and that's taught by um, co-instructors uh, Jeremy Green and Katie Brown, and they're, and those are for people saying, hey, I've identified a problem, 
And the problem is, um, you know, there's too many clothes. I'm just using an example. There's too many clothes that get donated to St. Vincent de Paul. They're, they're, they're inundated with clothes. And my solution is I'm going to create this special type of consignment shop where when you donate 50% of our proceeds go to a nonprofit, something like that. Um, so you've identified a problem in a, a potential um, business, and it could be um, a product, it could be a service. Um, a lot of times we focus more on what I would call high growth or scalable business. Um, so uh, a lot of apps, a lot of folk, um, folks in the tech sector, if they're saying, hey, I make this delicious type of pancakes. I'm going to open up this pancake restaurant. I just want one. It's going to be run by me and my wife or so on. Then I would probably direct them over to the small business development center. Robert and I work really closely together. Um, so there's kind of, you know, we want to make sure people are getting the right type of help. So we refer back and forth to each other. Um, and then after the eight weeks, if they're saying, wow, okay, I've got my value proposition. I know what my market segment is. Um, I've got my pitch together. I'm ready to figure out how do I, um, you know, trademark as a corporation and how do I do all the legality issues? Then they would go on to our four, 14 week program, which is, um, we call huge launch pad, which is the accelerator. And that just gives you every tool you need to, to absolutely start that business. Um, and you are practically going through all the exercises in your business and you're coming out of it, um, with your startup at the end. And we do big parties at the end and um, bring in lots of mentors along the way. That's a huge part of the startup ecosystem is all of the mentors, they like to give back and they're always there to help um, the newbies as they are on their journey. And these eight and 14 week accelerator programs are at no cost? No cost. How are they funded? And they're offered um, one evening um, during the week, they're meant to be, you know, we understand people have full-time jobs, so they're Wednesday evenings, um, and currently virtual, uh, we're hoping when we reopen, we can, uh, we're pretty sure we can stay hybrid so that people can participate at whatever level is easiest for them. How are they funded? How are the 18 and 14 week programs funded? So Onward has a lot of different program sponsors. Um, and so those sponsors support our programs um, and our initiatives. Um, we also recently got, Matt got the EDA grant, um, which helped not just fund my position, um, but some of the different work we're doing in the startup community as well. What would you like to say? There you, there you go. There's our, there's uh, right over my shoulder. You can see our sponsors now. Very good. Uh, what would you like to say to women or any other entrepreneurs that meet the criteria, especially with BIPOC? You know, when I started this Women in Leadership series, uh, I got a lot of pushback from people, I'm not going to say who they are, that didn't feel like it was necessary, that didn't feel like it was relevant. Saying, you know, so I know that there's pushback in the community. I watched, yeah. I've seen it over and over. And so I just get passionate because I remember what my mother went through that I mentioned to you earlier. So what would you say to women or, or any of from the BIPOC community that want, that have a dream, that have a, a, a vision, that have a, a concept in their mind about a business 
What would you say to them to connect them to the services of Onward Eugene and to get them to uh, not be afraid and be willing to engage with you? I would say there's real people involved with your journey. So you are not just a cog in the machine. You actually reach out to Caitlin and then we talk and either you go talk to Robert or you stay in our program where you meet Jeremy and Katie, but it's all very real and we all want to see them succeed no matter who is, you know, coming our way. If the program isn't the right time for you, then there's a resource that we could probably help you with. You know, this, this is all relational and we're all humans and we're all here to help. And I think it can be kind of a scary prospect, especially these days we're also used to submitting a form on a website and like who the heck knows where it goes, but you actually reach me and you talk to me or someone else and um, it's okay to feel nervous. It's okay to ask questions and it's okay if this isn't the right time, but maybe there's an, there, maybe it will be in six months. Um, but just starting the conversation is kind of the most important step. It's just, let's just start, start that connection. And to young women, this is title women in series, this title is women in leadership series. To who are in a place now that you were 10 years ago, but still have a dream, what would you say to them? Um, I would say it's not impossible. It's also not easy. Um, but, you know, you need to find someone that recognizes the light inside of you. Or if you have that own internal grit and that own internal conversation that you can pull yourself up. Great. But know that, um, you know, you're, you don't have to be alone in the journey. There are lots of other women and men too, that will help you. Um, if you, if you ask for it or, you know, you recognize someone that would be willing to help, you know, I think about, um, yes, that was 10 years ago, but you know, I shared my story in 2017 when I bought my first house and I bought it on my own. And, um, you know, think about where you can come in seven short years um, and, and the person you can become and what you can accomplish. But be prepared to have barriers and be prepared to figure out how to break through those barriers and just know that the outcome's always gonna be worth it. It really is. Yeah, Bill Gates um, has a co has some comment, or he made a comment that we overestimate what we can do in a year, but we way underestimate what we can do in 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so in closing, what would you like to say uh, to those community partners that are listed behind you who make the work of Onward Eugene possible? Well, obviously a huge thank you. The, these are all folks who recognize the potential, who recognize the possibility, and honestly, who just care about the community deeply. And so I think we, we all, um, you know, you and I talking, all the sponsors, all the people doing the work, feel really strongly that Eugene and Springfield is a great place to live and um, can get better. And so I think we're all kind of striving for a shared goal. Uh, and I just like 
I love seeing the uh, shared support as well in terms of every everyone that's a cheerleader. Like, thanks, thanks for being that cheerleader. That's an important role to fill. And all the one final question for me, uh, and all these years later, have you come to appreciate duck football yet? Uh, no. Um, yeah that's still no i go grocery shopping on the duck football game days and so i do appreciate that winco is empty and there's no lines oh, very so cool. there, there's there's a caveat to that ladies and gentlemen we have with us today caitlin vargas uh amazing leader she's a startup community direct director for onward eugene caitlin thank you for your story Thank you for your time. Thank you for your vulnerability. I know we could have talked about LTD and all these other things, but that's, I wanted to get to the story behind the story in your journey, because that's what people need to hear and know and, and come to a place that they can believe that there is a way up and there is a way out. If they'll just yeah. do the hard work and, and when those hurdles come to stay in the process. Yep, absolutely. Well said. Very good. Well, you have a good day, and we are definitely going to have you back. And we're we're going. I want to have some more conversations with you about the work of Onward Eugene. And uh, I think this this is. I didn't realize all of these things, but now that I know, we have a lot more conversations that, uh, ahead of us. That'd be great. I want to say thank you. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing with me. Also, my husband comes from a family of eight. His mom um, moved up from Mexico. And so I, I understand exactly what you shared um, in, in some degree. So thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. And of course, thank you for your great questions. Very good. You're welcome. Have a very good day. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Bye, Mark. Bye-bye.